Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back after Asr, inshallah you had your uh, tea as well, hope you enjoyed it. We're going to start off with about 30 minutes of Q&A, uh, just to get the, the, uh, the juices flowing again, inshallah. We're going to start with this one. The questioner asks, is Sahih al-Bukhari more authentic than Sahih Muslim? And if Imam Muslim was a student of Imam al-Bukhari, and Imam al-Tirmidhi a student of Imam Muslim and so on, then why the repetition of all the hadith books? Okay. Bismillah, walhamdulillah, wa salatu salam, wa rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala ma ba'd. You might have to ask me them one by one, Nabi, inshallah. No, yeah? no problem. So is, uh, is Sahih al-Bukhari more authentic than Sahih Muslim? Uh, is Sahih al-Bukhari more authentic than Sahih Muslim? Yes and no. Yes, it is more authentic in the sense that al-Bukhari has a condition which is stricter than the condition of al-Imam Muslim. And no in the sense that they are both authentic. And we're really talking about the difference between an A and an A star. We're not talking about the difference between an A and a fail, or an A and a C, or an A and a D. I don't know if you have the same grade system here, but like we do in the UK. You're talking about the difference between 95% and 96%. And it's a very, very small difference. But yes, Sahih al-Bukhari has a strict set of conditions for it than Sahih Muslim. And therefore, it is more authentic than Sahih Muslim. However, both of them are authentic. So the question is somewhat, um, uh, in terms of our practical application, it doesn't matter to us all that much. But there's no doubt that Sahih al-Bukhari is, is, has a stronger set of conditions for which hadith are included. And the second part? The second question is... Uh, Why if, the repetition regarding yeah, the students? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the purpose of this question is a very clever question. If all of these students studied from each other, why do we have all of these different books of hadith? The simple answer to that is that they didn't only study from each other. And I think I read to you at the beginning, just to give you a handful of the students of Al-Imam Muslim, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari, Yahya ibn Yahya al-Taymi, Yahya, uh, Ibn Yahya Al-Quradi, Ishaq Ibn Rahawai, Sa'id Ibn Mansur, Abdullah Ibn Maslama, Al-Qa'nabi, Abdullah Ibn Abdurrahman Al-Darimi, Muhammad Ibn Rumh, Harmalat Ibn Yahya, Abu Bakr Ibn Abi Shayba. All of them had different ahadith. So Muslim heard the hadith of Al-Bukhari, but there is something beautiful in hadith. That they all challenge each other to get a shorter chain. So Muslim hears a hadith from Bukhari. But the Shaykh of Al-Bukhari is still alive. What will Imam Muslim do? He will travel to the Shaykh of Al-Bukhari to see if he can hear the same hadith from the source. Because the Muhaddith is always trying to get the Isnad to be shorter. He's always trying to find a shortcut to get closer to the Prophet Also, this also serves to back each other up. And it's another evidence against the Orientalists who say that the hadith was something invented so many hundred years after the Prophet Each of them approves the other. Each of them checks the other. Muslim has hadith Bukhari doesn't have. Bukhari has hadith that Muslim doesn't have. Tirmidhi has hadith that neither Bukhari nor Muslim have. 
and Muslim has hadith that neither Bukhari and Tirmidhi have. Each of them have a hadith that are not present with the other because they studied from a different mix of people. There's not a 100% overlap. And because they made that effort that if they heard a hadith to go and get it from the source, they may have got it from other people. Remember, you're talking about people traveling from city to city. When this guy goes to Baghdad, there's a different group of scholars in Baghdad from when the next one goes to Baghdad. And when he's in Baghdad, the other one is in Makkah. And when he's in Makkah, there are some different people in Makkah. And so they're all listening from different people. And actually, the number of ahadith that are agreed upon by Bukhari and Muslim are relatively, I mean relatively small. There's a decent number, but they're relatively small in comparison to the number of total number of hadith that are mentioned in both. And then likewise, uh, if you were to go with uh, something like... Uh, the name escapes me. About the ziyadat of the Qutb al-Sitta, the, the uh, Al-Busayri. Al-Busayri's book on the, uh, the additions that, for example, Ibn Majah has over Bukhari and Muslim, you would see again there are, there are sort of a very limited number of hadith. So there's a huge benefit in this from two angles. Number one, everyone gets a different set of hadith and we can compare them. So when we compare Bukhari to Muslim, we find, okay, there might be a mistake here, there might be a flaw here, maybe this narrator wasn't reliable. And that's how scholars of hadith work. If you want to know what the science of hadith is in its essence, the science of hadith is about gathering everyone who ever narrated the hadith and comparing all of the chains together and coming out with the most authentic one of all of them. And that's a job that requires lots of the same hadith to be repeated again and again by different people so that we can compare the memory of one to the other. For example, if I've got two 97% students, i.e. 97 times out of 100, they won't make a mistake. And three times out of 100, they'll make a mistake. Those of you who have a bit of a mathematical mind, work out the probability of two of them making the same mistake in the same thing when they have 97% accuracy. Now add a third. Now work out the probability of three of them making the same mistake when they have 97% accuracy. You're talking about further cementing and comparing and further establishing the reliability of these narrations by comparing them to the narrations of different people. So yes, they all studied from each other, but that study benefits us in authenticating the hadith and it also benefits us in providing backup for other narrations. And likewise, they didn't all study from the same people at the same time and so they got a different collection of hadith and no doubt when Al-Imam Muslim went to Al-Imam al-Bukhari or when Al-Imam Muslim went to Ishaq ibn Rahawi, he heard a different set of hadith to what Al-Imam al-Bukhari heard. But you can see the attitude. As soon as Al-Imam al-Bukhari says, Ishaq told me, Al-Imam Muslim gets on his ride and he rides straight to Ishaq and he says, tell me. So that he can get the shorter chain to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this is called talabu ulu al-isnad. Seeking a high isnad, i.e. trying to get closer to the Prophet ﷺ to prove the reliability of the narrations. The science of hadith is so, so detailed and so precise that anyone who studies it doesn't have any doubt at all that every single hadith you read has been said by the Prophet ﷺ because of the amount of checking and verification and comparison that is done. And again, you get slightly different words. So one of them said Tawheed, one of them said La ilaha illallah. What does that benefit you? It tells you that La ilaha illallah means Tawheed and Tawheed means La ilaha illallah because the two words were used interchangeably 
by different companions or different narrators. And then again, you can go and you have a huge number of benefits and, and I'm not going to talk too much about the science of hadith because I'll be here all day, but that's a little bit of a reason why. JazakAllah khair. The question is, uh, let me see. Should we, should we show bara' to the, towards people who innovated in aqidah or also to the people who innovated in deeds only? And the second question is, should we or can we justify harshness towards people of bid'ah citing the harshness shown by Ibn Umar radiallahu anhuwa towards the Qadariyya? Okay. The first one with regard to Al-Bara' is that you have to realize that Al-Wala and Al-Bara' or showing allegiance towards Islam and the Muslims and showing disavowal and, and, and uh, breaking the allegiance with other people is not an absolute. It's not black and white. Rather, your allegiance to the Muslims is not an absolute. There are Muslims who are upon your religion and upon your belief and who are practicing Islam and who are calling to Islam those Muslims have a different kind of love and allegiance and bond between them to the, for example, the Fasiq, who is not practicing Islam, who is openly disobeying Allah in public. Likewise, your allegiance to them is different for your allegiance between them and between the non-Muslim. You don't make the non-practicing Muslim equal to the non-Muslim. And likewise, the non-Muslim who is positive towards Islam and who is cooperative towards Islam is not the same as the one who is an enemy to Islam, who is fighting Islam. So here you have, uh, it is not a matter of absolutes. It's a matter of, it's what we call nisbi. It's, it's relative according to the degree of the person's obedience to Allah and their following of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As for Ahlul Bid'ah, Bid'ah is not one category. And that's another mistake that people make. It's not Ahlul Sunnah and Ahlul Bid'ah as, as, as there is you know, no difference. There are people who are within Ahlul Bid'ah who are very close to the Sunnah and they are people who perhaps have a, a small degree of problem, they have some misunderstanding there. They're not the same as the Da'iyah who is calling the people to commit, for example, shirk in the name of innovation. And there is some bid'ah that takes you outside of Islam, which we call bid'ah mukaffara. And there is some bid'ah which is ghayr mukaffara, which is doesn't take you outside of Islam. So not all of them are the same either. There is no doubt that we have a degree of disassociation from every single person who opposes the sunnah, without a shadow of a doubt. But that disassociation is of many different types and of many, many different kinds according to the level of the person. So you need to treat the people in the way that is um, most appropriate for the position that they're in. So the person comes to you and they don't know much about Islam and they make a mistake in something. You don't treat them the same as the one who is stood on the corner of the street calling people to leave the sunnah. The two are different. Likewise with regard to the harshness. You also have to bear in mind the masalih and the mafasid the positive and negative consequences that come out of something. It's all for saying, you know, Fudayl ibn Iyad said, don't give salam to them and don't look at them and I would rather eat with a pig than I would with an innovator and all of these other narrations that are narrated from many of the, the salaf, salih. The problem with this is that you can't apply this blanketly to, blanketly to every single individual. Otherwise, you will end up 
For example, at a time when Islam is strong and the Sunnah is strong and you abandon an individual, that individual repents because they are cut off in society. But at a time when innovation is strong and the Sunnah is less, you took her away from them, they say, Alhamdulillah. You know, that guy was annoying me so much, he kept saying sunnah, 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 and he was just bugging me all the time, alhamdulillah, now he doesn't give salam to me, I feel much better. So you have to look at the positive and negative consequences. There's no doubt that bid'ah is a huge, huge sin. A huge sin in Islam. From the worst of the major sins after making a partner with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, the response to it needs to be with wisdom and needs to be appropriate. Just like non-Muslims are treated in different ways according to the way they are, likewise the people of innovation are treated in different ways according to where they are and where they are at and their closeness to the sunnah. And also, and we're going to cover this in the topic of takfir, which is going to come up in, in Sahih Muslim, that not everybody who commits an innovation is an innovator. And not everyone who commits kufr is a kafir. And that is very, very important. And we're going to cover this, inshallah, in detail on the chapters that deal with takfir and kufr in Kitab al-Iman in Sahih Muslim. That not everyone who does an act of kufr is a kafir and not everyone who does an innovation is an innovator. Rather there are conditions for a person to be declared an innovator and there are conditions and there are impediments that would stop somebody being accused of such. So at the end of the day there's a lot to understand about this. And it's very important that people don't go beyond the limit set by Allah thinking they're coming near to Allah when in fact they're not coming near to Allah at all. And perhaps they're actually causing far more harm than good. And perhaps they're actually pushing people away rather than bringing people to the sunnah. So it's very important that people use a lot of wisdom in this regard and really try to understand it. And at the end of the day, these matters of takfir and tabdi' which we're going to talk about, these are matters that relate to the scholars of Islam. And they are the ones who need to be giving you the cues and giving you the instruction on this. And not for you to be taking it among yourselves or for the tulab to get together and to be making rulings and issuing fatawa, especially when they deal with takfir and tabdi'ah. They deal with declaring people to be not Muslim or declaring people to be innovators. And this is how the, the khawarij and the likes of the khawarij flourish. Through ignorant people discussing with ignorant people. The blind leading the blind. That is how the khawarij flourish. The blind leading the blind. So the blind are making takfir of the blind and the blind are making takfir back to the blind. They don't know, none of them know anything. Rather, Ahlul Sunnah return this issue to the scholars, the major scholars of Islam, and allow them to guide you with regard to these issues. And at the end of the day, it's very strange that when it comes to a non-Muslim, you would treat them with a degree of kindness. And when it comes to a Muslim who is strayed, you treat them with harshness. And I remind you what Musa was commanded when he went to Fir'aun. فَقُولَ لَهُ قَوْلًا لَيِّنًا لَعَلَّهُ يَتَذَكَّرُ أَوْ يَخْشَى Say to Fir'aun a light statement, a, a soft statement. Perhaps he will remember or perhaps he will fear Allah. And one of the strangest things, and it's a story that happened with one of the tabi'een and one of the khulafa, one of the, the khalifas and one of the tabi'een. You know, as you know, the khalifa was, you know, he had sort of good points and bad points, so... One of the people came in and began to be really harsh with the Khalifa. You're like this, you're like this, you're like this. He said, I am not worse than Fir'aun and you are not better than Musa. And that is the truth. People have the right for you to explain to them in a good way, in a soft way. Because whoever you're explaining to, they're not worse than Fir'aun and you're not better than Musa. And Allah commanded Musa to say a soft word in the hope that the person will remember and take, and take note. 
And note the way that Ibn Umar said what he said. The way that Ibn Umar said what he said was said with a degree of firmness in, an, in a situation where the sunnah is prevalent. And where Ibn Umar saying this is likely to lead many people to repent. Oh, subhanAllah, Ibn Umar said he has nothing to do with us, let's change. And you see the benefit and the positive consequence is in doing what Ibn Umar did. But in our society, we need to take that knowledge from the scholars and the major scholars of Islam. And not the individual sort of, you know, students and, and the likes. Because this is where people can go into huge things. Especially when we get into the topic of takfir, which we're going to get into later on in Kitab al-Iman. Which is areas where people destroy other people's lives and destroy communities and destroy societies from the beginning to the end. So it's very important that we have developed our knowledge in this and we understand our place. And if we feel out of our depth, then we just fear Allah and we remain within ourselves and we simply worship Allah the way that Allah has commanded us to do so until we can gain enough knowledge to be able to judge these situations appropriately and make a balanced decision about what to do. Assalamu alaikum. One of my friends sent this um, uh, question that uh, one of Allah's traits is that He knows all and everything and He knows the future and the past. Then why is He testing us? This is actually something which I think we touch partially upon in Khadr, but it's, very, very it's a very important question and it's a very easy question to answer. We can answer it from multiple angles. In one way, we can simply quote that Allah is not asked about what He does and you are asked. Allah is not asked about what He does. And it's not for us to say, Oh Allah, how dare you test me? This is bad manners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is not asked about what He does and we are asked. However, if we get over that and we look for a wisdom in it, it is that Allah Azza wa can simply condemn you to the paradise or the hellfire knowing what is in your heart. Paradise, hellfire, paradise, hellfire, paradise, hellfire. Because Allah knows what's in your heart. Would you accept it? Would you come on the day of judgment and say, Oh Allah, I accept that you knew I was going to commit a sin and even though I didn't do it, condemn me to the hellfire. I agree. No, you wouldn't. In fact, you won't even accept your own hands and your own limbs to speak on your behalf. In fact, when the angels, or sorry, you won't accept the angels to testify. On the day of judgment, the angels will say, we saw him doing this. They will say, oh Allah, I will not accept a witness from them. I will only accept a witness from my own self. And so Allah Azza wa Jal will seal the mouths and make the hands and limbs speak. That is the extent that Bani Adam would not accept even the angels to bear witness against them. See, the angel said, I don't believe the angel. I won't accept anyone against me except me. So look at what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done. He set up a test by when you have no one to blame other than yourself. As the Prophet mentioned in authentic hadith, if you, whoever finds good, let him praise Allah, and whoever finds other than that, let him not blame anyone but himself. That subhanallah, look at the situation. Allah has set it up that you bear witness and you actually do those things. So that nobody can have a complaint against Allah That, oh Allah, you condemned me, you never gave me a chance Allah gave every single person a chance So I think that is partially the two answers One is that we don't ask Allah about what He does And we do, and the other is that This is part of establishing the justice of Allah That Allah will not allow Him simply to condemn us based on what He knows Rather He wants to see the people do the action So that He can bear witness And so He can give you more reward than you're worth and that is something that Allah Azza wa Jal mentions, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, mentions in the Qur'an that Allah will give you the reward equal to the best of what you have done. 
وَيَزِيدَهُمْ مِنْ فَضْلِهِ And he will give them even more than what they did. So Allah will go to the believers and give them many times more what they, than what they did. And he will go to the disbelievers and give them nothing but what they asked for. Nothing but what they asked, asked for. So hopefully that answers uh, the question. I have a question uh, that a brother actually asked and I wanted to answer if I can just interject for a moment. Uh, the brother mentioned with regard to da'wah. He said you talked about Ahlul Kitab. But the Ahlul Kitab of today are different. And that is that you have many people in Dubai and, and, and elsewhere who are very, very wealthy, very, very you know, outwardly happy individuals. They have everything. They don't really believe in Christianity or Judaism. They don't really care. They have plenty of money, a very nice, comfortable life. And they're not really interested in religion. How is it that we can call these people and invite these people to Islam? I think that the first thing is, uh, as we mentioned, Your job is to give the message. It's not to worry about who accepts it and who doesn't. Your job is simply to give the message. But having said that, it is important you give the message in the most accurate and the most, um, the, the closest way that they can come to understand what you're saying. So yes, you only have to give the message, but it's not a matter of just going like a robot, accept Islam, okay, I've given you the message, accept Islam, I've given you the message. You know, you're going to make an effort with them for them to do, uh, for you to have done as much as possible to help them find that route. And with these people, I think it's very important to recognize that their happiness is completely illusionary. It's not real. And the evidence for this is the statement of Allah The one who turns away from my remembrance will have a hard and harsh life. Yes, this applies to being in the grave and it applies in their regular life as well. And Allah uh, mentions the uh, By the remembrance of Allah, hearts find rest. So yes, their material world is like a drug. They need more and more and more of it just in order to keep away from them the depression that is really within their hearts. How many of them kill themselves? How many of them turn to drugs? How many of them turn to, you know, hugely, hugely things that are detrimental to themselves? Simply because their hearts can't find any happiness. You look at them and you think this guy has everything. Wallahi, they have nothing. Nothing at all. Their hearts are empty. They have nothing. And yet what they're doing is using the material world just as a drug to make them forget. Why do they get drunk? They get drunk to forget their miserable, horrible lives that they have to live. And honestly, being a Muslim, it's very difficult to understand this. But when you see non-Muslims, they drink to forget. It's escapism. They drink to escape their miserable lives, even when they have the best cars and the best houses and the best jobs and a salary we could only dream of. And they still drink to escape. Because their hearts can't find rest. So don't be, don't be tricked by what Allah has given them. Yes, it can make them forget. Yes, you can get so much of the dunya that you forget for a temporary amount of time. At least until you have to go and get some more, you forget about the miserable life that you have. But every now and again, it will hit home. And make sure when it hits home to them, your message is there. So you've given them that message. It may just go, yeah, okay. You know, tonight I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm loving it, Dubai is great, you know, I'm partying all night, I'm, you know, I'm getting paid a fortune. But sometime, one time or another, the time will come when it will strike them. And if you've given them that message, they'll remember that you know what it is, they were right. 
I didn't find any happiness in what I was doing and that's why the people are still coming despite being in this situation they're still coming to Islam in the hundreds and thousands in here in Dubai and elsewhere so alhamdulillah there's no issue with that it's a matter of don't feel you have an inferiority complex don't feel that you're inferior because they are you know they're so wealthy and so happy and so all of these things realize that you're superior you people are the higher people. You people are the superior people. You people are the high people. If you are really believers. So don't have that inferiority complex. Go and give them the truth. And let it set with them. If they accept it, they accept it. If they don't, perhaps a day will come when Allah makes them realize that all of this hayat dunya is just la'ibun It's just plain amusement. And it's just an illusion of wealth when in reality it doesn't actually count for anything in the end it all goes and you can give them you know that reminder of death it may hit some of them sometimes it may not but at the end of the day the main thing to realize is that all of this uh, this bubble they build around themselves is completely illusionary give them your dawah directly and give it indirectly and I'm against indirect dawah alone I don't believe this is the sunnah that you just be nice to people and eventually everyone will become Muslim that's not true you invite them to Islam you say to them, I'm inviting you. John, Mark, whatever your name is, I'm inviting you to become Muslim. I'm inviting you to accept Islam. Here, have a read about Islam. What do you know about Islam? What do you believe in? I don't believe in anything. Start challenging their beliefs because it might just stir something inside of them that makes them think. And even if they don't think right away, I don't know, two, three, four years, nobody has a 100% happy life for the rest of their life. You know, at some point, something will dip. And then they'll think, you know, subhanAllah, maybe they got drunk one night, they had a bad night, they ended up getting themselves in trouble, they wake up the next morning and they think, you know what it is, what that guy told me at work is completely true. And then they come to the center and they, they take their shahada. So don't be frightened to tell your message and don't be embarrassed about your religion. Tell it like it is, inshallah. This will be the last question and then we'll continue with the, uh, the explanation of the uh, book. Uh, the questioner asks, is it good to do... Good deeds just to seek a place in paradise and not from the heart, really. By the consensus of Ahlul Sunnah, Ahlul Sunnah do good deeds in order to seek reward from Allah. And out of the love of Allah, uh, together. And as for those people who said that we just do good deeds from the heart, this is not from the Sunnah. This is an innovation that was uh, invented by some Muslim groups and it goes openly against what the Sahaba did and there are many many ahadith some of which we will cover in Kitab al-Iman which clearly show that the Sahaba were motivated by a reward for paradise in fact there are ayat in the Quran those people, the prophets, the salihin, the pious they are the people who are calling upon Allah, seeking a means of nearness to Allah, which of them is closer. And they hope in His mercy and they fear for His punishment. And this is something that is the situation of all of the prophets, that they asked Allah for Jannah, and they worked because of Jannah, and they were motivated for the reward in Jannah. And as for doing things out of the goodness of the heart, this is something that came from Christianity and some of the innovated sects in Islam that has no place in Islam. It was not done by the Prophet ﷺ and he was the best of us. People do things expecting the reward from Allah and out of a love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as for those people who said, we worship Allah out of love alone, this has no place in Islam. We worship Allah out of love and out of fear and out of hope. 
Those people who fear Allah but they don't hope in Him, they despair. Those people who hope in Allah but they don't fear Him, this is basically Christianity, which is the belief that we can do anything we want and we're going to go to heaven. Christianity and Judaism. And those people who said that we love Allah and we don't hope and we don't fear Allah, then these are people who have ignored the book of Allah and ignored the sunnah of the Prophet Else why does Allah tell you about Jannah? And why did the Prophet motivate the companions with the reward that they would get from Allah because all of them were acting on three things love in Allah, hope in Allah, and fear of Allah. Hope in the reward, fear for the punishment, and the love of Allah binding those two things together and not taking them separately. So we do our good deeds out of a love of Allah and hoping for the reward that is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as the Prophet did. And as Allah said, Asaya ba'athaka rabbuka maqaman mahmuda. Perhaps Allah, or in the hope that Allah Azza wa Jal will give you the highest station in paradise. I'm motivating the Prophet ﷺ to continue his da'wah, knowing that he will get the greatest reward of any of Allah's creation. And that is how the Prophets were, and that is how the Muslims who have been upon the Sunnah and the Imams of Islam were. And we're going to see some evidence for this, inshaAllah, as we go through Kitab al-Iman, inshaAllah ta'ala. Okay, we resume with... Chapter number 8, the command for fighting against the people until they profess. La ilaha illallah and that Muhammad sallallahu is the messenger of Allah. It is narrated on the authority of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu that when the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam breathed his last and Abu Bakr was appointed as his successor, those among the Arabs who wanted to become apostates became apostates. And Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu said to Abu Bakr, why would you fight against the people when the Messenger of Allah declared, I have been directed to fight against people so long as they do not say there is no or so long as they do not say there is no God, or until they say there is no God but Allah, and he who professed it was granted full protection of his property and his life on my behalf except for a right. His other affairs rest with Allah. Upon this, Abu Bakr said, By Allah, I will fight against he who severs between the zakah. Because it is an obligation upon the rich. By Allah, I would fight against them even to secure the cord used for tying the feet of a camel, which they used to give to the Messenger of Allah, وسلم, but now they have withheld it. Umar ibn Khattab remarked, By Allah, I found nothing but the fact that Allah had opened the heart of Abu Bakr for perceiving the justification of fighting against those who refused to pay the zakah, and I recognized that the stand of Abu Bakr anhu, was right. This hadith actually has a story behind it which you have to understand the context of and the story is alluded to at the beginning of the hadith. And that is when Abu Bakr became the Khalifa after the death of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, a number of people, a number of the Arab tribes openly left Islam. Openly left Islam. And there was a group of them among them, who professed Islam in every single way, except that they refused to give the zakah to Abu Bakr. And crucially, they did not just refuse, which is one point, they fought against Abu Bakr and said that if you come and take the zakah, we're going to fight against you. So they refused and they fought. And that's quite critical. They didn't just refuse. As for the one who just refuses, then the Wali al-Amr comes and takes the zakah from them by force. 
they confiscate the money, you know, they confiscate it out of a person's, you know, in modern day terms, they confiscate it out of your bank account or they confiscate your property. If you commit a crime, then there's no doubt that the authorities come and the police come and eventually they confiscate part of your property. But the issue here is what happens when somebody fights against the ruler and says, I'm not going to give the zakah and if you come to get it, I'll fight you. This is the situation of this group that we're talking about. They professed La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They prayed five times a day, but they refused to give the zakah to Abu Bakr and they said, if you come for it, we will fight you. The Sahaba, in this regard, disagreed with Abu Bakr's decision. In fact, almost nobody, I say almost because there were some, almost nobody stood with Abu Bakr. And that is because they didn't know of the hadith which mentioned, uh, the, uh, which uh, comes along with this hadith, which mentioned that the giving of the zakah, including in the thing that makes a person safe for, from being fought against. That hadith was held by Abdullah ibn Umar. Abdullah ibn Umar had a hadith which proved that I was commanded to fight against the people until they testify there is none worthy of worship but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah and they perform the prayer and give the zakah. Abdullah ibn Umar had a hadith which proved that Abu Bakr was right. But at this stage here, Abu Bakr doesn't know the hadith and Umar doesn't know the hadith. Most likely Ibn Umar is not there, otherwise he would have mentioned it. Uh, and Ibn Umar comes to know of the issue later. And he and maybe a couple of other of the companions know that the stance of Abu Bakr is right. But the overwhelming majority of the companions back Umar. That as long as they've said, La ilaha illallah, you can't fight against them. You know, and this hadith is the, is the evidence that Umar gave. Umar said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, and you might want to put that bit just in quotes, just to give you an idea of what Umar is using as an evidence. I have been directed to fight against the people so long as they do not say there is no God but Allah. And he who professed it was granted full protection of his property and life on my behalf except for a right and his other affairs rest with Allah. So the Prophet ﷺ is saying, I have been commanded. And when I says I have been commanded, this means by Allah. When the companion says I've been commanded, it means by the Prophet ﷺ. And when Allah says I've been commanded, it means by Allah. Or when the Prophet says I've been commanded, it means by Allah. So Allah commanded the Prophet to fight against the people until they say La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. In Ibn Umar's narration, it includes the prayer and the zakat. But here they don't have that narration. So all they have is this. And whoever says it is granted full protection of his property and life except for a right. Now I want you to underline or circle whatever is easy for you, except for a right. And his other affairs rest with Allah. What we're going to see is that this hadith here does not contradict the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar regarding the salah and the zakah. Because what does Abu Bakr say? Notice Abu Bakr's reply to Umar. So here we have Umar gives his evidence. Look at the, look at the fiqh, look at the understanding. Umar says, right, Prophet said, if you say la ilaha illallah, you're protected in your wealth and your family and your, and your health in your body and your wealth, and unless there's a right. What does the right mean? It means if, unless you do something that falls under 
the remit of the waliul amr to take recompense against you. For example, you stole somebody else's wealth, or you killed somebody, or you, you, know, you did something along that, those lines, in which case the police, the waliul amr, whoever it is that is appointed, whatever the system is in whatever country it is, is going to come and is going to take away that right from you, which you got from la ilaha illallah, because you broke the rules which entitled the waliul amr to do that except for a right. And his other affairs rest with Allah. So what does Umar understand? Umar understands that the zakah is a matter of the other affairs that rest by Allah, rest with Allah. Abu Bakr gives two evidences to refute Umar. Bear in mind that neither of them know the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar at this point. Abu Bakr, and this is the superiority of Abu Bakr, look at the evidence he gives. He said, by Allah I will fight the one who severed the prayer from the zakah. That's evidence number one. Severed the prayer from the zakah. I.e. that we all agree as the companions that the one who refuses to pray is not Muslim. And that's a matter of consensus among the Muslims. Not the lazy person, that's a matter of disagreement. But the one who refuses to pray is not a Muslim by consensus of the Muslims. So now Abu Bakr is saying, the Salah and the Zakah are constantly mentioned together in the Qur'an So whoever separates them, I'm going to fight against them I.e. the one who says the Salah is one thing and the Zakah is another, I'm going to fight against them That's his first evidence For it is the, an obligation upon the rich This is the second evidence What is Abu Bakr saying? Abu Bakr is saying that it is a part of the rights of the waliul amr to fight against the people for. I, Abu Bakr said, you, O Umar, just told me I can't fight against them without a right. And from my rights is to collect the zakah, therefore I'm going to fight against them. And that's a very strong evidence from Abu Bakr. It's stronger than his first evidence. His first evidence is that Allah mentions salah, zakah, salah, zakah, salah, zakah. I'm not going to separate between them. But his second evidence is very strong. His second evidence is that you have, the Prophet ﷺ said, I can fight him if I have a right. And zakah is a right for the rich to give me their wealth. Therefore, if they don't give the zakah, I can fight against them. By Allah, I would fight against them even to secure the iqal. The iqal is the, you know, the, the, the thing people wear around their heads, the black sort of uh, rope. Originally, it was used to tie the feet of the camel. And the people would put it on their heads as a sort of convenient place to keep it when they weren't tying their camel's feet. And then it became a part of the, you know, sort of the custom and the culture and the clothing. Uh, but this is something that regarding the iqal, if it was even an iqal, which they used to give the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, but they have now withheld it. And now look at Umar coming back to the truth. He's not frightened. He's given an opinion and he said, by Allah, I found nothing but the fact that Allah had opened the heart of Abu Bakr for fighting and I recognized that Abu Bakr was right. So Abu Bakr gave two evidences. Umar immediately recognized them and submitted to the truth and agreed after their debate and their discussion. This hadith has so many benefits in it. From the benefits of this hadith is the munasaha, the nasiha between the waliul amr and between those people who are around the waliul amr and have the ability to advise whether that's the overall ruler or the individual people the manager at work or whatever that you have this munasaha 
you have this advice going between the two. That the person, Abu Bakr, is being advised. He's made a decision. Umar says, look, there's an evidence against it. Why don't you think about changing? This is the, the best kind of advisor that a person can have. Because he's willing to challenge the decisions in a, in a respectful and a positive way in order to get the, uh, the, the, the thoughts of Abu Bakr to change. Now, of course, this is not for everybody to do. And it's not to be done publicly. It's to be done privately by those people who have the ability to do so. So not everyone has the ability, not everyone has the kind of, you know, sort of access or contacts, but those who do, you give advice. And you give, you know, you give evidence for what you say. And look at the fact that Umar was willing to change his mind when he saw that the truth was with Abu Bakr, radiallahu and that Abu Bakr uh, fought against the people until they professed. Now, uh, in this, Al-Imam al-Nawawi suggests that the reason that Al-Imam Muslim included this in Kitab al-Iman is the command for fighting against the people until they witness that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah and Muhammad is the Messenger of Allah. With regard to this, there are a couple of uh, quite important points we need to mention. First of all, that the issue of fighting is something that is the prerogative of the Muslim ruler. And it's not the right of the individual to decide. And it's not the right of the individual to fight against those people who have uh, refused to accept Islam. That is the right of the Waliul Amr, the right of the, the person in authority. It is not the right of the individual Muslim in any circumstances. So it's not for an individual Muslim to go out of this hall and find a non-Muslim and say, right, you didn't say la ilaha illallah, right, I'm here to fight you. No, at the end of the day, this is a matter that goes to the authority. And it can't work any other way. Because the, 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 the person in authority, they are the ones who have an overview of what is going on. They are the ones who are able to judge positive and negative consequences. They are the ones who are able to make a plan for the country that is going to work. At the end of the day, you can't have individuals going back against that one way or the other. This will cause the Muslim strength of the Ummah to break. And it will cause the society to be corrupt. And it will cause the entire country and all of the people in it to lose their safety and lose their security, as we've seen in other countries around the world. And we've seen it so many times when people broke against authority in these matters, they caused more harm than good. And Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala said, there has never or almost never been a group of people who rebelled against those in authority except that they caused more corruption than they rectified. And wallahi, he told the truth. Until yawm al-qiyamah bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, wallahi, he told the truth. You, when a person takes these matters into their own hands, they cause an infinite amount of corruption more than the things that they correct. They destroy the country, they destroy the people. The matters of fighting against people are matters that is from the prerogative of the ruler. It's his decision to make, not our decision to make. If he makes that decision, that's his decision to make. If he withholds, that's his decision to make. And Allah Azza wa Jal will ask him about that decision. But it's not your decision to make. And it's not for an individual to take these matters into their own hands. Like the hudud. The hudud of Allah are the matter of the ruler, the sultan. The sultan is the one who has the authority to establish the punishments. It's not for someone else to establish a punishment for alcohol or a punishment for zina or a punishment for murder. If these go outside of the courts and outside of the police system, what is going to happen? You're going to have somebody saying, you know, you looked at me funny, actually. Off with his head. The next guy fighting against it, there's going to be murder and slaughter in the streets. What keeps the streets safe is having the people behind a single person who they are united behind 
and who they obey and what Allah commands them to obey and they you know, uh, stick within the commands of Islam in this regard. That is what corrects the country. That is what corrects the country even in the worst of circumstances. And a country that sticks to this, even if they are in the worst situation, is always going to be better than a country where there is lawlessness. And you only have to look around the world to see the effect of that lawlessness on people. So we have to be very clear that the command for fighting against those people who refuse la ilaha illallah is the prerogative of the Muslim ruler. It is their decision to make. It is up to them to decide how that should take place and under what conditions that should take place. And it's part of their responsibility and it's not part of ours. Part of our responsibility is to call the people to Islam and then it is up to others to make the decisions regarding these kinds of issues. So that is the first point which is uh, important to note regarding fighting against the people until they profess that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah. The next point here is that even under the circumstances when this is applied, there are many people who are accepted from this list. And from those are the people of the book who pay the jizya, when the jizya is established. Of course, in modern times, the jizya doesn't really, isn't really established around the world. But should that be established, then those people are exempt from the hadith of I was commanded to fight against the people because they are people who have entered into an agreement with the Muslims. Likewise, what is exempted and does exist in this world are all of those people whom the uh, ruler or those people representative of the ruler have given a permission of safety. So for example, a person comes who has not said la ilaha illallah and the ruler welcomes them to the country and gives them a guarantee of safety, which in these days is a visa, then that person is not to be fought and they're not to be harmed and to do so is a major sin because they have been given a guarantee of peace and security from a Muslim, it is not permissible for another Muslim to go against that guarantee of peace and security under any circumstances. That is an absolute uh, standard in Islam that when a person is given a guarantee of safety and security, it, is, it holds, it's watertight in all circumstances. Likewise, those other countries which the Waliul Amr or the, the one in authority has entered into agreements of peace with, whether they are Muslim or non-Muslim, and so on and so forth. These are all established principles that are exceptions to the rule in this regard. So we should understand this hadith in the right way and we should not use uh, this hadith uh, to be misunderstood uh, and then you know, to lead people into doing things that, ha that in the end of the day they cause corruption and they don't cause any benefit to the people, not to Islam and not to the Muslims and not to the Ummah as a whole. So with regard to fighting against the people, we said that this is something that is organized by the one in authority and it is subject to the conditions that, is that are laid down by the one in authority and there are exceptions to the rule even when it's implemented, including the one who gives the jizya, the one who's been given a guarantee of safety and security and those non-Muslims who have had a contract of peace uh, made with them between any Muslim, whether that one is in uh, authority uh, or whether that is one of the Muslims in a different regard or in a lesser authority, the same applies to all of them. And you can find more about this in Kitab al-Imara and Kitab al-Jihad in Sahih Muslim, which cover the ahadith that deal with these kind of uh, issues. However, as it relates to Iman, it shows you the importance of La ilaha illallah. And in this regard, you remember that hadith of the people of the man who was about to be killed. And as he was about to be killed, he said, La ilaha illallah. And then the Sahabi killed him, saying, You only said, La ilaha illallah, just to protect yourself. And the Prophet ﷺ said, 
Did you kill him after he said La ilaha illallah? Did you kill him after he said La ilaha illallah? The Sahabi said he didn't. He continued to say it so much so that I wished I had not become Muslim until that day. And the Sahabi said, I wished I had not become Muslim until that day. Because I was so devastated by the fact the Prophet kept on saying, did you kill him after he said, la ilaha illallah. Because at the end of the day, we accept, and from the, the benefits that Shaykh Abdul Muhsin mentioned regarding this hadith, is we accept the apparent and the outward uh, acceptance of Islam from people. And we don't cut open a person's heart. The Prophet ﷺ said, I was not commanded to cut open the chests of the people. Or as he said, وسلم, I was not commanded to cut open the chests of the people. We, are t- we take the apparent from somebody. They say, we've become Muslim, khas, you become Muslim. All of the rules of Islam are applied to you. We don't say, have you really become Muslim? Can we really tell, I don't think you're a real Muslim? No. If they profess Islam, we accept Islam. Because until they say, la ilaha illallah. And so simply saying la ilaha illallah, even if we haven't established all of the circumstances around it, is enough for a person to become safe. And that is the value of your iman. That it protects you and your wealth and your honor, even in the most extreme of circumstances. And you imagine you're fighting against the Muslim army, and the Muslim army is coming towards you under every circumstances, you're an enemy combatant against this Muslim army. And yet the second that you say la ilaha illallah, you are safe. Because this is enough to protect yourself. And we have of course the benefit of the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar uh, with regard to the addition of the salah and the zakah and the importance of the salah and the importance of the zakah and the importance of obedience to those people who come to collect the zakah and the obedience to the wali al-amr, in this case Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, when he commanded them to give the zakah and they refused. And they said, we gave it to the messenger of Allah وسلم, we're not going to give it to you. And so there are a large number of benefits in this hadith in relation to Iman and in relation to other issues as well. So specifically as it relates to Iman, the virtue of La ilaha illallah, the value of La ilaha illallah and the power of La ilaha illallah and the fact that we accept the apparent nature of a person's Iman rather than the inner, you know, the inner nature of their heart and whether they have truly accepted it in their heart or not. Chapter 9, we're making good progress, alhamdulillah, I'm relatively happy with the progress that we've made and I, I'm quite hopeful that we're, you know, we're getting through a, a decent chunk inshallah. Evidence that the Islam of the one who becomes Muslim on his deathbed is valid so long as the death throes have not begun, abrogation of permission to supplicate for forgiveness for the idol worshippers and evidence that the one who dies as an idol worshipper is one of the people of hell and no intervention can save him from that. It was reported by Sa'id ibn Musayyib who narrated on the authorities of his father Musayyib ibn Hazm that when Abu Talib was about to die radiallahu anhu oh, sorry, when Abu Talib was about to die not radiallahu anhu because Abu Talib did not die as a Muslim the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came to him and found him with Abu Jahl and Abdullah ibn Abi Umayyah ibn al-Mughira radiallahu anhu and the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said my uncle just make a profession that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah and I will bear testimony before Allah. Abu Jahl and Abdullah ibn Abi Umayyah addressed him saying, Abu Talib, would you abandon the religion of Abdul Muttalib? The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, constantly requested him to accept his offer and on the other hand, the same statement of Abu Jahl and Abdullah 
uh, was made until Abu Talib gave his final decision to be stuck to the religion of Abdul Muttalib and he refused to testify that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah. Upon this, the Messenger of Allah remarked, by Allah, I will ask forgiveness for you until I am forbidden to do so. And Allah Azza wa Jal revealed, it is not for the Prophet and those who believe that they should ask forgiveness for the polytheists, even though they were their kith and kin, after it being made known to them that they were the residents of the hellfire. And it was said to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, indeed you cannot guide who you want, and it is Allah who guides whoever he wills, and Allah knows best those who are the guided. This is the story of the death of Abu Talib who died despite protecting and spending his life defending and protecting the Prophet Abu Talib defended the Prophet to the very end. He praised Islam, he has poetry in which he praised Islam and he said that Islam was the true religion. However, on his deathbed there was Abu Jahl and Abdullah ibn Abi Umayyah. And they were convincing him not to renounce his old faith and not to accept Islam. And the Prophet ﷺ, and this is the, the point of the hadith in terms of Kitab al-Iman, said that he simply had to say, La ilaha illallah. This is evidence that the Islam of the one who becomes Muslim on his deathbed is valid as long as the death throes have not begun. So you can take that uh, part as being answered or you can number it however you want to do it so that you know how, where the title of Imam al-Nawawi relates to the hadith. So this is an evidence that the one who testifies La ilaha illallah on their deathbed, it is enough for them. And they are an exception to the rule. Because the general rule in the matter of Iman is what? The general rule in the matter of Iman is that Iman only benefits you if it is, a, if it is accompanied by action. And the one who dies with no action in association to their iman, they are not it is not accepted by Allah as them having iman in the first place. And this is well known to Ahl Sunnah that it is not acceptable for a person that doesn't pray, doesn't fast, doesn't give the zakah, doesn't do anything, and he just says, La ilaha illallah, he will not be from the people of Jannah. By the consensus of Ahl Sunnah in this regard. However, there is an exception to the rule, and that is the one who accepts. Islam on his deathbed, because this person has done all that he can do. He's accepted Islam, now he doesn't have time to get up and pray. He doesn't have time to give the zakah, he has the intention to do so. But he's on his deathbed, he has no choice. As long as the soul has not reached the throat. And that is what is meant by the death throats. I, as long as the soul has not reached the throat. When the soul reaches the throat, there is no tawbah when he sees the angel pulling the soul out of him. And then he says, yes, you know, inni tubtu al-an, as Allah said. Now I've made tawbah. And Allah says, there's no tawbah for the one who waits until the death comes to him and then he says, inni tubtul an, now I've made tawbah. However, this is the one who has not yet seen the descending of the angels in the throes of death, at the last moment of death, but the soul has not yet been taken out of the body. This person is in the ability to accept Islam. And if they accept Islam, it will be accepted from them even though the basic principle is you have to have at least some actions to be considered to be a Muslim. And you can't have no actions whatsoever. Uh, and indeed, uh, this concept that you can have no action whatsoever is from the belief of the Murjiah. And it's not from the belief of Ahl Sunnah that you can have no action whatsoever. Rather, you have to have action to accompany your statement of La ilaha illallah. 
But the, there are certain exceptions to the rule, and one of the exceptions is clearly the one on the deathbed, because the, he has no further ability to do anything else. And of course, Abu Talib, in the end, despite his love of Islam, and despite his love of the Prophet wasallam, and despite his defense of Islam, he chooses to die upon the religion of Abdul Muttalib. And upon this, the Messenger of Allah remarked, By Allah, I will beg forgiveness for you until I'm forbidden to do so. Because at this point, the Prophet has not been forbidden from asking forgiveness. And Abu Talib has spent his life defending Islam. And then Allah revealed that it is not permissible for the Prophet and those who believe that they should ask forgiveness for the polytheists, even if they were the closest of the people to them. After it has been made known to them that they were from the people of the Hellfire. And this is uh, an evidence that the one who dies as a polytheist is one of the people of hell. And if they die in an apparent nature as a polytheist, you treat them as a polytheist. And it's not that you have to wait, oh, I don't know if they died a Muslim or not a Muslim. If they died in an apparent state of not a Muslim, you treat them as not being a Muslim. And Allah knows what is in their hearts. Should they have an excuse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not allow that excuse to be wasted. But the one that dies a Muslim, you treat as a Muslim. And the one who dies as a non-Muslim, you treat as a non-Muslim. And you can't seek forgiveness for them after it becomes clear that they are from the people of the hellfire. And he openly renounced, he openly renounced Islam or he openly uh, denied Islam and he openly accepted the religion of the polytheists. There are a number of benefits to this, including this ayah. Indeed, you do not guide who you love, but Allah guides who He wills. That the Prophet ﷺ tried everything he could to guide his uncle Abu Talib. He tried everything he could to guide his uncle Abu Talib. Everything he could. Look at the effort he's making. And yet, Allah did not allow Abu Talib to be guided by the hand of the Prophet ﷺ. This shows you that the Prophet ﷺ does not have the qualities of Allah. He does not choose who is guided and who is not guided. And some of the scholars of tafsir mentioned that this is another reason for the revelation of the ayah You have nothing to do with this. Allah said you have nothing to do with this. And it was related, re revealed in the battle of Uhud. And some of the scholars said it was related to this as well. You have nothing to do with this. This is not your control. This is down to Allah And this is a further evidence with regard to our da'wah that we don't have uh, this degree of control over who is guided and who isn't, but look at the Prophet ﷺ striving for his guidance. Not simply sitting back and saying, yeah, yeah, you know, he's not a believer, he's not a believer. You know, whatever Allah guides, whoever Allah guides, he guides. No, he's making his effort. He's tying his camel. He's making the most effort he can to guide him to Islam, but in the end, the decision was that of Allah, uh, was belonged to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah did not choose to benefit him. Uh, one of the other points of benefit that we need to mention in this regard uh, relating to this hadith is the hadith of Al-Abbas when he said to the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, that you didn't benefit your uncle anything. I, he defended you, he stuck up for you and you didn't benefit him anything. Like, you know, In the end, you didn't guide him, he wasn't guided, he didn't accept Islam, he died as a non-Muslim, you couldn't ask forgiveness for him. You know, what did he benefit? The Prophet ﷺ said that rather because of the intercession of the Prophet ﷺ for him, he is in the least of the place of the hellfire. He thinks that he is in the worst and he is in such a place that his heels are placed in pools of fire and his brain is boiling. 
And that is the state of the person of the least of the people of the hellfire. And he thinks that he is the worst of the people of the hellfire, even though just the bottom of his feet are, are placed into the fire and his brain is boiling because of it and he thinks he is getting the worst punishment when in fact he is getting the least. And this is the only intercession that is reported of the Prophet ﷺ interceding for someone who is not a Muslim. And that intercession does not take them into Jannah, but it is an intercession that lightened the punishment of Abu Talib in the hellfire. As the Prophet ﷺ indicated, he would have been in the lowest depths of the hellfire, but after the intercession of the Prophet ﷺ for him, he became in the highest or the lightest place of the hellfire. And it's an evidence that the hellfire is bad enough that we don't even want to be in the lightest place of it. May Allah save you and I from being from the people of the hellfire. The point of Imam al-Nawawi that no intervention can save a person from being from the hellfire, that is clear. That the Prophet was not able to take his uncle Abu Talib out of the hellfire. But all he was able to do is to lighten his punishment in the hellfire. And that this was unique for Abu Talib because of his spending his entire life in the service of Islam. But he didn't die as a Muslim and that is inshallah clear. The evidence that the one who dies believing in a tawheed will definitely enter paradise. Notice the use of the word tawheed here by Imam al-Nawawi. That may be useful to you again when we get into this debate of this word tawheed was never known by the scholars of Islam. Although actually I don't know, it says tawheed here but in the, in the wording I have of Sahih Muslim it says iman. So maybe this is not an example. There are plenty anyway. But uh, maybe this is, I mean, in, in some of the, in some of the Sahih, there is Kitab al-Tawheed in any case, inside of uh, the, the books of Hadith, the Kutub al-Sitta. Many of them have the book of Tawheed, the book of Iman. But in, in any case, in this case, I, the wording I have in, uh, in, in my copy of Sahih Muslim, I don't know about the Arabic copy. Which Hadith are we up to? 39. Yeah, this is, uh, I think this is a mistake with the Arabic title here because uh, this is, uh, the Arabic title here is not the right title for the Bab. The right title is, uh, for those who are writing it anyway, That is the, the, the uh, title. So it is a very valid evidence. Uh, the evidence that the one who dies believing in Tawheed will definitely enter into paradise. It is narrated on the authority of Uthman that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, He who died knowing that there is no God but Allah enters paradise. And it's narrated on the authority of Umran that he heard Uthman saying this, and I heard the Messenger of Allah وسلم, uttering these words. And it's narrated on the authority of Abu Hurairah, we were accompanying the Messenger وسلم, in a march towards Tabuk. The narrator said the provisions with the people were almost depleted. And the situation became so critical that the men of the army decided to slaughter some of their camels. Upon this, Umar said, O Messenger of Allah, I wish that you could pull together what has been left of the provisions with the people and then ask for the blessings of Allah upon it. The narrator said then the Prophet وسلم, did it accordingly. He said, the one who had wheat in his possession came with wheat, and the one who had dates came with dates. And Mujahid said, the one who possessed stones of dates came there with stones. The narrator said, what did they do with the date stones? 
They said the people sucked them and drank water over them. The narrator said the Prophet ﷺ invoked the blessings of Allah upon them for the, for the provision. And there was such a miraculous increase in the stock that the people replenished their provisions fully. The narrator said at that time the Prophet ﷺ said, I bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah and I am his messenger, the one who will meet Allah without entertaining any doubt about these two will enter into Jannah. These three hadith, all of them are an evidence that the one who dies without making a partner with Allah Azza wa Jal will enter into Jannah. And in this regard, we have to make sure that we understand this properly in light of what I said a few moments ago, that it is not possible for a person to die upon Tawheed in the majority of circumstances and not have any good deeds. Rather, we understand all of the hadith together as a whole. We don't take one hadith and use it to attack another hadith. Rather, when we look at the whole of the book of Iman, we find that it is a requirement for people to have certain conditions to enter into paradise. And there's no doubt that the foremost of them and the most important of all of them is Tawheed. And that is the worship of Allah alone and not making any partner with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in anything. I.e. not giving the rights of Allah to anyone or anything else. And that the one who has these will enter Jannah. And in some of the narrations, however little his actions are. And there's no doubt about that. However, there must be certain actions for that person to enter into paradise, unless they are, as the person was described in the past, dying on their, you know, on their deathbed or something like that, or they just became Muslim and then immediately died afterwards or something along those lines. They have to have some actions with them. And this really, what I want to stop on this hadith and really emphasize to you, is the value of taking all of the hadith together. Someone may say, Muhammad, where's your evidence? These ahadith seem to explain quite clearly that as long as I die believing la ilaha illallah, even if I don't pray and I don't fast and I don't give any zakah, then I will go to Jannah. We say that there are many, many other ahadith that indicate otherwise. For example, al-ahdul ladhi baynana wa baynahum as-salah faman tarakaha faqad kafar. The difference between us and them is the prayer and the one who leaves it is disbelieved. And the statement of between a person and between kufr and shirk is abandoning the prayer. And other statements like this. And the, the, the principle that the scholars of Islam have called kufr irad, which is where somebody has disbelief by turning away from every part of Islam. They don't go to Jumu'ah, they don't go to the Eid prayer, they don't pray, they don't give zakah, they don't fast, they don't do anything. And these people are disbelievers by consensus of the scholars. And therefore we say in this regard that these ahadith have to be understood in the context of the other ahadith in Kitab al-Iman and in the other books of hadith. And it's not for us to come and to take one hadith and to blank out all of the other hadith and then to say, yeah, this hadith shows that this person will enter into Jannah without any action. Rather, a person needs to have at least some actions in order to enter into paradise, at least the minimum that keeps them in Islam. And if you remember in the beginning, we went through Islam and Iman and Ihsan. And we said Islam... In this way is the minimum that a person needs to do to remain a Muslim And that includes, according to the correct opinion, the five daily prayers And there is some disagreement about the prayer um, But the correct opinion and the one that there is overwhelming evidence for In Sahih al-Bukhari and Muslim And in the books of the Sunan and in Jami' al-Tirmidhi 
from the narrations of the companions and from the ayat of the Quran is that the one who abandons the prayer is not a Muslim. Whether they abandon it out of laziness or whether they abandon it out of a refusal to pray. And that is something which is well established uh, amongst uh, the opinions, even if the majority of scholars of Islam consider them to be a Muslim. And that is a matter of disagreement. But the point here is not to do with the prayer. The point here is that in theory, you cannot get a person who has no good deeds at all except la ilaha illallah. Except for the one who dies immediately uh, upon uh, tawheed, he accepts Islam on the deathbed or accepts Islam and then dies immediately afterwards, on very, very other limited circumstances. And it's very important that these hadith are understood in the right uh, context and they understood in agreement with all of the other ahadith that come in the sunnah. And really the greatest cause of misguidance in things like this is when people take a hadith and they take it out of the context of the rest of the sharia. As though each hadith is its own little mini religion. No, it's not true. All of the hadith support each other. All of the hadith, are, uh, they don't contradict each other. They work together. So we take the hadith in general. And we say that yes, the person who dies upon Tawheed, regardless of how little their actions are, as long as they have the basics required to be a Muslim, they will enter paradise. And this is understood from the fact that they die upon Tawheed. Because you can't die upon Tawheed unless you have the basic requirements of being a Muslim. Otherwise you didn't die upon Tawheed. As for the belief that just saying La ilaha illallah means Tawheed, then this is well refuted in all of the books of Aqidah. That La ilaha illallah does not mean Tawheed. La ilaha illallah is a statement and it has actions that go with it. If someone says La ilaha illallah and continues to prostrate to an idol, that La ilaha illallah has no value and you don't say that they died upon Tawheed. The one who dies upon Tawheed is the one who dies not having given any of Allah's rights to anyone or anything else and having worshipped Allah alone and having the minimum standard required to be considered to be a Muslim. That is the one who dies upon Tawheed. And that is the one who dies knowing that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah. And this meaning of knowing that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah, i.e. knowing and acting upon it, knowing and acting upon it, because knowing it by agreement is not enough. But I mean, a non-Muslim might say, I know that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah. The meaning of knowing here is knowing and acting upon it. I knowing and implementing that knowledge. And likewise, in the hadith of Abu Hurairah, the one who will meet Allah without entertaining any doubt about these two fundamentals will enter Jannah. And there's no doubt about that. As we said, as long as they have the conditions of Islam, because the only people who are going to enter Jannah are those people who have the conditions, the minimum conditions of being a Muslim. And that is how Ahlul Sunnah explained this particular uh, hadith. Chapter 11, evidence that the one who is content with Allah as his Lord and Islam as his religion and Muhammad وسلم, is his prophet, then he is a believer even if he commits major sins. It is narrated on the authority of Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib that he heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam say, the one who is pleased with Allah as his Lord, with Islam as his religion, and with Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam as his messenger. The hadith is, he has tasted the 
uh, or he has relished the taste of faith, the one who is pleased by, with Allah as his Lord and Islam as his religion and Muhammad as his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I actually think the most amazing thing about this particular hadith in Sahih Muslim is the fiqh of Imam al-Nawawi in choosing this title for this hadith. Because this hadith is a beautiful hadith and you read about it, the, the taste of faith that you bear witness that Allah is your Lord and you're content with Islam as your religion and you do the, you know, you do the minimum to, to, to be within that. You accept Muhammad وسلم, as your messenger and you do what that entails. What does an Imam al-Nawawi say? He is a believer even if he commits major sins. So Imam al-Nawawi used this hadith as a refutation of the Khawarij. Part of the belief of the Khawarij, amongst the issues of rebellion and other things, part of the belief of the Khawarij is the belief that the person who commits major sins is not a Muslim. And these people exist until this very day. They probably don't exist in the same form as they did at the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib, but they exist in exactly the same sort of belief set as they, they do today. You hear them say, the Muslims are engaged in riba, they're not Muslim. It's permissible for us to fight them. The Muslims are engaged in corruption, they're not Muslim. It's permissible for us to fight them. This is an evidence against them. And Imam al-Nawawi is refuting this belief with this hadith. And saying that this hadith is an evidence that you have tasted Iman as long as you are pleased with Allah as your Lord, with Islam as your religion, and with Muhammad as your messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, even if you commit major sins. And that major sins don't take a person outside of Islam. And this is a fundamental part of our Iman. That major sins do not take a person outside of Islam unless they declare them to be permissible. Major sins do not take a person outside of Islam unless they declare them to be permissible. But even with this declaration of being permissible, it has to be an open and a clear declaration. What you get some people say is, oh well, you know, he opened a bank, therefore he must allow it. Not necessarily. Istihlal means somebody comes and says, I believe it is permissible for us to do X, Y, Z. In a matter that is known to be haram. Not that they're confused, and they got confused and they thought maybe it's not riba. They said riba is only, you know, when it doesn't benefit people. And, you know, there are confusions. Not that. We're talking about someone who comes and says, yes, I know riba is haram, but I think it's halal. That person is different. But as for the person who has a weakness and falls into riba, or has a confusion and falls into riba, by this hadith and many, many others, they are still a Muslim. And so this is a refutation of the belief of the Khawarij, those people who said that the people who commit the major sins are not Muslim. And from the ajib of the Khawarij, and the Khawarij are all just weird. I mean, they, they, sometimes you think, you know, subhanAllah, how a people can be so stupid. But Allahu Musta'an, the Khawarij, one of the things that you see about them is that they are so forgiving of themselves and not forgiving of anyone else. So when you see the Khawarij come, they say, Those people who don't rule by what Allah has revealed, they are the disbelievers. We're going to come to this in Kitab al-Iman. The Khawarij himself is committing many, many sins. 
He says, yes, but I'm trying hard. I'm a sincere Muslim. But as for that guy over there, subhanAllah. He, he applies it to somebody else. He doesn't apply it to himself. And I don't know how the Khawarija, you know, here, inshallah, there aren't any in, in Dubai, and inshallah, they're being gotten rid of, but in the UK, we have loads of them. As in the UK, we have every kind of sect and group. In the UK, we have loads of them. And you see this guy come, and he has shaved his beard. And he comes and says to you, وَمَنْ لَمْ يَحْكُمْ بِمَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهِ فَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْكَافِرُونَ Say to me, Ya Akhi, Jazakallahu Khairan, you just made takfir of yourself. Because there's a bit of a rebellion gone on in your face there. Somebody's rebelled, your beard has been rebelled against and it's been taken off. So who is the kafir now? You just declared me for being a kafir. And you declared all of the rulers of the Muslim world to be kafir. And yet, you in yourself don't apply the laws of Islam. To your own self. Who said that this ayah was revealed to one person and not to the other? This is the situation of the khawarij. That you see them, the first people to point the finger at somebody else and they themselves are afsaq al-fusaq. They're the most fasiq of the people. They lie and they cheat and they deceive and they don't implement the laws of Islam and they openly disobey Allah and His Messenger and then they say, He doesn't rule by what Allah revealed. And this Kitab al-Iman has many, many chapters in it that refute the belief of the Khawarij. And this is one of them. Because a fundamental principle of the Khawarij that they use to attack the Muslims around the world and to make lawful the blood of the Muslims around the world is that the Khawarij say that because the Muslims do major sins, they're not Muslim anymore. And this hadith that Imam al-Nawawi uses as a refutation against them, and there are many, many hadith. And again, you know, if you look at Ahlul Bid'ah, you'll see something very strange. If you ask the Khawarij, what is your dalil that the major sins make somebody kafir? What is your dalil that the major sins take a person outside of Islam? What does the Khawarij come and say? He brings you one hadith. One hadith. So you don't have two, he says no, just one. La yazni azani hina yazni wa huwa mu'min. No person commits zina while they're committing zina while they're a believer. Say, mashallah, anything else? He says no, nothing else. All of these hadith in Kitab al Iman in Sahih Muslim, one, two, three, four, five, and you have nothing but one hadith. This is the situation of Ahl Bid'ah. You ask the people about the prostration to the graves. Why are you prostrating to the grave? They said, the ayah in Surah Al-Kahf فَقَالُ بْنُوا عَلَيْهِمْ بُنْيَانًا رَبُّهُمْ أَعْلَمْ بِهِمْ That's all they have. Say anything else? No. What about all of that hadith the Prophet ﷺ forbid the building of the graves and he forbade making dua to other than Allah and the ayah? Nothing except one hadith, one ayah, maybe two. Some of them have two hadith. Some of them have one hadith and one ayah. Whereas Ahl Sunnah we have books and books and books we say, pick a book. You want Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, pick me one. And I'll show you Kitab al-Iman. And I'll show you the evidence that the major sins don't take a person outside of Islam. When you say to them, they're like, yeah, uh, I only have one evidence. We say, this is how Allah described them. هُوَ الَّذِي أَنزَلَ عَلَيْكَ الْكِتَابِ مِنْهُ آيَاتٌ مُحْكَمَاتٌ هُنَّ أُمُّ الْكِتَابِ وَأُخَرُ مُتَشَابِهَاتٌ فَأَمَّا الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ زَيْغٌ فَيَتَّبِعُونَ مَا تَشَابَهَ مِنْ إِبْتِغَاءَ الْفِتْنَةِ وَبْتِغَاءَ تَأْوِيلِهِ وَمَا يَعْلَمُ تَأْوِيلَهُ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَالرَّاسِخُونَ فِي الْعِلْمِ يَقُولُونَ, رب يقولون آمَنَّا بِهِ كُلٌّ مِنْ عِنْدِ رَبِّنَا وَمَا يَذَّكَّرُ إِلَّا أُولُو الْأَلْبَابِ Allah says, He is the one who sent down to you the book. 
In it, there are ayat that are clear in meaning. These are the foundation of the book. And other ayat that are unclear. And as for the people who have a deviancy in their heart, they follow that which is unclear, seeking a trial for the people and seeking to interpret it, but nobody knows its interpretation except for Allah and those who are firmly grounded in knowledge. And this is a correct way of reading the ayah. You can read it both ways. You can stop at the word Allah. You can stop at the word Ar-Rasikhuna fil-ilm. And they say, we believe in it, all of it is from our Lord. And nobody will remember except people of understanding. So this is something that we should be aware of. That when you deal with people who have gone astray in Islam, often they have no evidence except one hadith. And yet you have many, many, many hadith. The murji'ah, for all they believe about iman, they have one or two hadith. That's all they have. After all of the stuff about your action is part of your iman and haya is part of your iman and removing something from the road is part of your iman, in return, all they have, whoever says, La ilaha illallah will enter Jannah. And at the end of all of it, nothing. Nothing at all. So you see, this is the condition of the people who stray from the path of Islam. That they have very, very little in the way of evidence. And you see the that, that, that the people of the Sunnah united. Al-Imam Muslim included this hadith and many, many other hadith in the refutation of the, the Khawarij. Likewise, Al-Imam Al-Nawawi used this hadith to evidence that the one who commits the major sins is still a Muslim. They've not left Islam. And this is something that is, inshallah, clear to everybody, that the major sins don't take you outside of Islam. Drinking alcohol doesn't make you kafir. Likewise, committing zina doesn't make you kafir. Unless you openly stand up and say, I know it's haram, and I believe that it's halal. I, I reject the law of Allah. That's different from the one who says, yeah, I know it's haram, but I'm weak. That person is still a Muslim, and they still have an opportunity to go to Jannah. Yes, they deserve punishment, and if Allah wills, He will forgive them, and if Allah wills, He will punish them. So this hadith was used as an evidence for that by Imam al-Nawawi, and there are many others that we're going to come across because we have a long section on the uh, topic of takfir to come up at some point, inshallah, if we get around to it. So whoever is pleased with Allah as his Lord and Islam as his religion and Muhammad وسلم, is the messenger of Allah. Again, how do we understand that? Does it include action? Does it not include action? How do we understand it? We return it back to the other ahadith. So we take all of the hadith together and we come to the conclusion that the meaning of being content with Allah as your Lord is to worship Allah. And being content with Islam as your religion is to do your best to practice the religion and being content with Muhammad وسلم, as the messenger of Allah to follow his sunnah, to love his sunnah is the best of your ability. And that is a part of your being content with your iman and your faith and being able to taste the sweetness of your iman is a part, part of that are the actions that you do. And it's not like the munafiq who says, I'm happy with Allah as my Lord when he's not happy with Allah as his Lord. So that has to be understood again in context. Chapter number 12, clarifying the number of branches of Iman, the best and the least of them, the virtue of Al-Haya and the fact that it is a part of faith. On the authority of Abu Hurairah, the Prophet ﷺ said, Iman has over 70 branches and modesty is a part of Iman. Again, this is a clear evidence against the Murji'ah who say that action has no part in Iman. So modesty is an action. And modesty is something beautiful, and we could talk about modesty all day. But modesty is effectively, actually modesty is not the right word. I would be tempted, in all honesty, to write this word in Arabic as haya. Because the word haya in Arabic 
is something that has more about it than just modesty. In fact, there isn't a very good translation. I mean, modesty is good. It's not a bad translation. But there's not really a very full word or a full explanation for what haya is in Islam. Because haya is so much more than just modesty. Haya is something, is a characteristic that a person has that prevents them from two things. Haya is a characteristic that someone has that prevents them from two things. It prevents them from disobeying Allah and it prevents them from disgracing themselves in the eyes of the people. It prevents them from doing anything which would lower their status in the eyes of the people. So haya has a department or a division of it that relates to Allah and haya has a division of it that relates to the people. As it relates to Allah, haya is something that encourages you to do every kind of good and to avoid every kind of sin. Haya is a characteristic which encourages you to do every kind of good and avoid every kind of sin. However, also haya has an element towards the people, which is that you wouldn't do something that would bring dishonor upon yourself in front of the people as well as that which is in front of Allah. All of this is a part of haya. And the Prophet ﷺ said when he saw one of the companions admonishing his companion for having too much haya, he said, Da'hu, leave him. Because every single part of haya is good. There is no such thing as having too much haya, except in one area. And that is mentioned in the hadith of Aisha, Ni'man nisa nisa'ul ansar. How wonderful are the women of the Ansar. They did not allow their haya to stop them seeking knowledge in the religion. So the haya that prevents you from doing something obligatory is not something praiseworthy. The haya that prevents you from doing something obligatory is not something praiseworthy. Such as the haya that stops you asking a question when you need to ask it. The haya that stops you from praying when you need to pray, the haya that stops you from making ghusl when you need to make ghusl, this is not haya, this is something evil. However, proper haya is that which encourages you to do every good and keeps you away from disobedience to Allah and keeps your honor in front of the people. So haya is something which is, as the Prophet ﷺ said, khayrun kulluh, every single part of it is something good. And there's nothing bad and nothing negative about haya as long as it is not that false haya that stops a person from practicing their religion. And that shows that it's not right to admonish someone for being too shy. People do it with their children. When they say, oh my, you know, you're too shy. Go and be more boisterous. Shout out a bit more. Leave him because haya is, all of it is good. And the Prophet ﷺ said, The Prophet ﷺ said, Al-haya'u la ya'ti illa bi khayr. The haya, haya doesn't come with anything except good. So it's very important that we encourage ourselves and our children to have haya. And haya is that characteristic that encourages you to do everything that is good and forbids you or prevents you from disobeying Allah and it prevents you from doing what would dishonor you or disgrace you in the eyes of the people as well. And haya is a part of iman. The Prophet is saying Iman has over 70 branches. There are a number of wordings. Muslim himself narrated over 70 or over 60. 
And in this uh, first hadith, Muslim narrated over 70. Generally, the wording of Sahih Muslim is more reliable, but here we have the narrator doubting over 60 or 70. Um, and Allah knows best. But the key thing here is that Iman is different branches, different parts. And it's not just about the belief that you hold uh, in your heart and this evidence that modesty is an evidence that action is a part of Iman. So this is a refutation of the murji'ah who say that action is not a part of Iman and this is an evidence that action is a part of Iman. One of the things we should mention is with regard to the murji'ah that the murji'ah have a, a subgroup of them which were from the people of the Sunnah who accidentally fell into some of the aspects of what they believed. So these are people who are upon the Sunnah, great Imams of Islam, but they fell into a little bit of what the Murji'ah fell into. Uh, and from them was Abu Hanifa and Tahawi and some of the others who didn't apply the rules of the Murji'ah in, in the absolute way, but they made some mistakes in these issues. And so they maybe they, they slightly removed actions from Iman or they said Iman doesn't go up and down. That is not something that we hold against them. These are great Imams of Islam who, like every other Imam of Islam, got things right and got things wrong. And that's not to be held against them in any way. Rather, that is why the scholars don't call them murji'ah. And they don't say that he was murji'i. They say that he was uh, from murji'atul fuqaha, a person who was a great scholar of Islam who fell into some of the areas of irja'ah. So if you read something like al-aqidah tahawiyah, you'll notice in there that there are elements of uh, the belief of the murji'ah. And that's something that doesn't take away from the value of the book. It just is a, you know, a small mistake that was made by a group of people because they didn't have access to the evidence and they maybe confused a few ayat. And that happens to everybody and anybody. Nobody is perfect. Like Al-Imam Malik said, Every single one of us will have something accepted from what they said and something rejected. So at the end of the day, you know, this is something that you should be aware of. And we're talking about Iman. We shouldn't be, be shy to mention these things because you may come across that you're in, you know, when you're furthering your reading and you're reading Aqidah Tahawiyah or something similar like this and you come across a point that everyone's Iman is the same and Jibreel's Iman is the same as, as your Iman. And you know, this is something you should be aware that this is not a, you know, a reason to burn the book. It's just a simple mistake that they made that some of the scholars of Islam, some of the great Imams of Islam, Rahmatullahi Alayhim, made. And it doesn't take anything away from them. They were sincere in calling to the sunnah. And they made a small mistake in this regard. However, there is a clear evidence that it is a mistake. And this is clearly shown in Sahih Muslim with regard to these kind of ahadith. That modesty is a part of iman. Modesty is a branch of iman. And on the authority of Abu Hurairah, the Prophet ﷺ said, Iman has over 70 branches or over 60 branches. The most excellent of which is the declaration that there is no God but Allah. Notice that declaration is an action. I mean, it's a statement of the tongue, but it's still something you do. And the humblest of which is the removal of something dangerous from the path, and modesty is a branch of Iman. So this shows us the highest level of Iman, the highest branch of Iman is La ilaha illallah. The lowest branch of Iman is moving something harmful out of the road, and Haya is a part of Iman. Every single one of those three things are actions that people do. Say la ilaha illallah, have modesty, and remove something harmful from the road. All of them are actions. And that is a very strong evidence that actions are a part of iman. 
And Salim reported on the authority of his father, radiallahu an, uh, Abdullah ibn Umar, radiallahu anhumah, that the Prophet ﷺ heard a man instruct his brother about modesty. On this, the Prophet ﷺ said, modesty is an, here they said, an ingredient of iman. I'll just mention one hadith, which is the hadith narrated again by an Nawawi in his 40 hadith. مِمَّا أَدْرَكَ النَّاسِ مِنْ كَلَامِ النُّبُوَّةِ الْأُولَىٰ إِذَا لَمْ تَسْتَحِي فَاصْنَعْ مَا From that which the people have come to know from the speech of the earlier prophethood, is if you do not have haya, do as you like. There are actually two ways, or there are actually four ways, or five ways of translating this hadith. All of them are correct. Uh, but I just want to demonstrate two, because I think that it, it shows a different side of haya. One is that if you don't have haya, by default you're going to do whatever you like. And the meaning of this is like, ma min duni. Worship whatever you like besides Allah. Allah says to the disbelievers, Worship whatever you like besides Allah. And that's not giving them permission to worship other than Allah at all. That's simply, um, I guess if you like, attacking them and ridiculing them and saying to them that you may as well worship whatever you like because your punishment is guaranteed. Worship whatever you like because your punishment is coming. Part of the hadith, if you have no haya, do as you like, is, is in this regard, that if you have no haya, do whatever you want because your punishment is coming. Another way of understanding it is if you have no haya, then a person who has no haya is going to do whatever they want. As in, it's a khabar, it's informing you the truth. That if you have no haya, you're not going to care what you do. But there's another way of understanding this hadith which might escape many people. And that is the hadith says, if the matter is not something about which you should have haya, do it and don't worry. So this hadith has, um, has two sides to it, a positive and a negative. On the negative side, the meaning is, if you don't have haya, do whatever you want and Allah will punish you. Or, or if you don't have haya, by default you're going to do whatever you want. On the other side, the positive side, it means, if this issue is not an issue that has any haya in it, i.e. it's not haram, and the people don't think bad of you for doing it, then don't worry about it and do it and you won't have to worry about it being haram, because if it's not a matter of haya, then you don't have to worry about it. And so that's another side to haya. Haya is not just about uh, prohibiting you from doing evil, but also that if a matter is not a matter about which there is any haya to be had, then you know that that matter is permissible. And so haya has a positive and a, a negative side, or a side that relates to doing things, and a side that relates to avoiding doing things. Chapter 13 a phrase that sums up Islam. On the authority of Sufyan ibn Abdullah al-Thaqafi, he said that I asked the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to tell me about Islam something which might dispense with the necessity of asking anybody after you. Or in the hadith of Abu Usama, other than you. The Prophet sallallahu said, say I affirm my faith in Allah and then remain steadfast. Qul amantu billah thumma Again, uh, because of the shortness of the time, I'm just going to highlight a few points in this regard. First of all, the quality of the question, again, tell me something, O Messenger of Allah, I won't need any help. You know, I won't need to go to Abu Bakr and say, what was the meaning of what you said? Or I won't need to go to Umar after you and say, or Umar, what did he mean when he said, believe in Allah? Something that I can understand 
and will keep me firm. I don't need to ask anything about anyone after you. The Prophet said, Kul amantu billahi Say, I believe in Allah, then stand firm. As for the statement, Amantu billah, this is an indication of a person's iman, and that iman effectively. Uh, you're entering into Iman and your belief in Allah Azza wa Jal is the very you know, core of your Islam. And it's a point that your belief is extremely important and that what you believe as a Muslim is not an irrelevant thing or ignore what we believe, you know, bring us all together, we all pray to one Qibla. That's not what the Prophet said. Qul amantu billah. Say I believe in Allah. And the meaning of Qul here, say, uh, you might want to highlight that is where it says say the meaning is say and do and the evidence for that that, that it is say and do is that the tafsir of kul huwallahu ahad kul a'udhu bi rabbil falaq and kul a'udhu bi rabbil nas the scholars of tafsir say all of the statements kul in the Quran means say and do i.e. Say, say what you're being told to say and implement it in your life and this is present in the books of tafsir. If you look at the tafsir of the, the surahs that begin with qul and the ayat that begin with qul, the mufassirin say that the ayat and the surahs that begin with qul, it means say and implement what you say. Say and do. So it's about your, first of all, your faith in Allah, your belief in Allah, and from your belief comes the action that is a part of that belief. Your iman starts with you believing in Allah, with you saying la ilaha illallah, and then the actions which follow that. You know, you, you hold, I believe in Allah, I say la ilaha illallah, and then I start to act upon la ilaha illallah. And so it's the importance of belief and the importance of iman inside of the, you know, the law of Islam, and that your iman comes first before everything else, and your belief is incredibly important to you as a Muslim because it defines who you are as a Muslim. And then remain steadfast. The word for steadfastness is istiqama. And the meaning of istiqama, each of the Khulafa al-Rashidin gave a different meaning for istiqama. Abu Bakr and Umar and... Uh, I don't remember whether Uthman and Ali or just Ali, but in any case, either three or four of the Khulafa al-Rashidin gave a different explanation for istiqamah. But they were summarized by Al-Hafidh ibn Rajab, rahimahullah ta'ala, and Al-Hafidh ibn Rajab said a beautiful statement, and it's well worth writing, write, it's well worth writing down. Al-Hafidh ibn Rajab said, the foundation of istiqama or steadfastness, if you prefer to write steadfastness, the foundation of steadfastness is for the heart to be firm upon tawheed. And if the heart is firm upon Tawheed, then the limbs will be firm in obedience to Al-Aziz, Al-Hamid. 
And this is in Jami' al-Ulum wal-Hikam. That he said, if the heart is firm upon Tawheed, then the limbs will be firm in obedience to Al-Aziz Al-Hamid. He said the foundation of steadfastness is for the heart to be firm upon Tawheed. And if the heart is firm upon Tawheed, then the limbs will be firm in obedience to Al-Aziz Al-Hamid. And I think this is a beautiful statement by Al-Hafiz Ibn Rajab Ta'ala. And it sums up this hadith. Why did the Prophet say, say, believe in Allah and then remain firm? Because if your heart is firm in obedience to Allah, then your limbs will naturally follow in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because there is a link between a person's outer self and a person's inner self. And the two are not disconnected. There is a strong link between a person's outer self and inner self. If your outer self is going wrong, that's because there's something wrong inside. And if your outer self is going right, that's because the inside is, is right. And so if you get that belief right at the core, the actions will sprout from that and will grow from that and will develop from that. And the actions will turn into something that will lead to your steadfastness and your obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As for what istiqama really means, the most comprehensive definition of istiqama that I have seen, or steadfastness that I have seen, is that it is the following. To stick to Allah's straight path by doing what He commanded you and avoiding what he prohibited you from. So sticking to Allah's straight path by doing what he commanded you and avoiding what he prohibited you from. And by sticking to the limits of Allah or by staying within the limits of Allah, that's better. Staying within the limits of Allah. So sticking to Allah's straight path by doing what Allah commanded and avoiding what Allah prohibited you from and staying within the limits with knowledge and sincerity and following the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam with knowledge and sincerity and following the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so sticking to Allah's straight path by doing what Allah commanded and avoiding what he prohibited you from and staying within the limits of Allah, or the limits set by Allah, however you want to word it, with knowledge and sincerity and following the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This is a comprehensive definition of what it means to be steadfast in Islam. Stick to Allah's straight path. How do you stick to Allah's straight path? Do whatever Allah tells you to do and avoid whatever Allah prohibits you from. And stay within the limits set by Allah. You need to do so, you need knowledge. Because without knowledge you don't know where the limits are. And you don't know what Allah commanded you. And you don't know what Allah prohibited you from. And you need the two things that every action needs to be accepted. Sincerity and in being in accordance with the sunnah 
of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so you can see that this is one of the ahadith that encompasses the entire of Islam within it. Because the whole of Islam is in there. Say, I believe in Allah, i.e. you testify and you do all of the actions that that implements and then, or that entails doing, and then you remain steadfast, you do what Allah commands you, you avoid what Allah prohibited you from, you stick to Allah's limits or within Allah's limits, and you do so by gaining knowledge and with sincerity for the sake of Allah and in accordance with the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Chapter 14, clarifying the superiority of Islam and which part of it is best. It is narrated on the authority of Abdullah ibn Amr radiallahu anhuma that a man asked the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam which of the merits is superior in Islam. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that you provide food and extend greetings to the one that you know and the one that you do not. That a man asked the Prophet ﷺ, which of the parts of Islam uh, or which of the things in Islam is best, and the Prophet ﷺ said that you provide food, i.e. that you give food to those people who do not have enough food, and you extend the salam to the one that you know and the one that you don't. And Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As reported to have said, indeed a person asked the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who among the Muslims was better? So the first question was, the part of Islam that was best, and the second was, uh, regarding the, which of the Muslims was better. Upon this, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, the one from whose hand and tongue the Muslims are safe. I'm not sure whether the word superiority here is the right word for the Arabic word tafadul. I would have thought, and I could be wrong, we can go back to what the, uh, the dictionary and what the uh, scholars of Islam say about this, but I would have thought the tafadul of Islam is the different merits of Islam, i.e. that Islam has tafadul, it has some parts in it that are better than others. And so I don't think that the word here is superiority. Um, and I could be wrong, I'm not a native Arabic speaker, but I think that the word tafadul here means that there are different levels within Islam, i.e. that parts of Islam are better than others. So I think what Imam al-Nawawi is trying to say here is that parts of Islam are better than others. And which of the parts is the best? And so I don't think superiority is the right word here. I think tafadul means that they are of different, some are better than others, some parts of it are better than others. And this is the purpose of including these ahadith in Kitab al-Iman, to prove that there are parts of Islam and parts of Iman that are higher than other parts of Iman. Now, one of the things you will notice is, if you gathered together, and I think Sheikh Ibrahim uh, al-Rahili, gathered together a booklet which has many, many of the different uh, narrations in it which mention bits of Islam being better than others. Because there are many, many narrations. Which bit of Islam is best? There are, there are many, many different answers given to the Prophet by the Prophet 
However, what I want to do for you guys is for you simply to understand that there are parts of Iman and parts of Islam that are better than others. And that is the purpose of an Imam Muslim choosing these ahadith here. At the end of the day, is providing food better than being good to your parents? Is uh, extending the salam better than some of the other things that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned as being from the best of the deeds in Islam? There are many, many, many narrations that are mentioned. And so what we are simply proving here is we're not, it's a long topic to discuss which of them is better than the other, but it simply proves that there are deeds that are better than other deeds, and that not all deeds are of the same reward. Giving food is not exactly equal to giving money, and giving, uh, for example, being good to your parents is not exactly equal to being good to your neighbor. There are differences in the levels of iman that you get from each action, and there are differences in the increase in iman that you get from each action. So sometimes when you do an action, you get more of a boost in iman than other actions that you do. And that's something that is explained here. And this, of course, tells us the great virtue of providing food and the great virtue of giving the salam to those who we don't know and those who we know. And it's very sad that, you know, again, our norm has become to give the salam to the people we know. Everyone else gets a salam. You know, and the person you know gets a hug and, uh, you know, a shake of the hand. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah, what are you doing? Wa barakatuhu, you know, and they get the whole salam. Get in the habit of trying to give the salam to those who you know and those who you don't, even if it feels a bit uncomfortable at the beginning, because you seem like you're giving the salam to everybody. But that's a benefit for you and a, a fantastic good deed for you. And it's part of the best areas of Islam. And of course we should point out from these, or from this first hadith, that this is not an evidence that these are better than the other things that are mentioned in the, hadith of, in the other hadith about the best parts of Islam. And uh, the sheikh in his pamphlet, he tries to sort of come to a conclusion about which are better. And he says that it's dependent on time, it's dependent on place. For example, in a famine, providing food might be better than another deed that you do. There are lots and lots of very complicated issues to, to bear in mind, and it's really a matter for a thesis at university to look at all of the different things that have said to be the best part of Islam, and when is one better than the other, and when is one not better than the other. It's a long topic. But at least we can take from this that there are bits of Islam that are better than others, and uh, we can take uh, from this the virtue of providing food and extending greetings. Uh, as for the point of which of the Muslims is better, then the Prophet ﷺ remarked from those from whom their hand and tongue, the Muslims are safe. And there's no doubt that that is the situation of the Muslim towards his brother in Islam. لا يؤمن أحدكم حتى يحب لأخيه ما يحب لنفسه None of you truly believes until you love for your brother or he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. And in general, our perspective towards other people should be that we keep them safe from our hands, and that means beating, and it also means anything you do with your hands, like you know, using your hands to set up something evil for them or to do some kind of harm to them, and likewise your tongue. And sometimes the tongue is worse than the hands, in all honesty. Many, many times the tongue is worse than the hands. And the tongue actually leads to, you know, subhanAllah, a lot more evil sometimes than even the hands lead to. And I guess the tongue is probably the one that is the most hidden out of everything. Because when it comes to 
the hand of the Muslim. This is something quite obvious. But you might think that you're doing very well in not harming people, but you're harming them with your tongue. Through lying, through cheating, through backbiting and through slander. And of course with backbiting we remind you all that backbiting is saying something about your brother or your sister in Islam in their absence, which they would not like even if it is true. And if it's not true, it's slander. So saying something about your Muslim brother or sister in Islam in their absence that they would not like even if it is true or despite it being true. So you see a brother after a long time and he's put on a bit of weight and when the brother leaves, I use the brother as an example because it's a bit light and if I say to the sister, someone might get upset. So I say to the brothers, you know, you see a brother after a long time and he's put on a bit of weight and the brother goes away. He said, subhanAllah, he's put on weight. It's true. He has actually put on weight. But this is backbiting because you said something that is true that he wouldn't like you to say about him. And you have to ask forgiveness for it in this life, otherwise he'll take it from your good deeds on the day of judgment and if you don't have any good deeds, he'll pile his bad deeds onto you. And so it's very important that we keep our hands and tongues, uh, keep the Muslims safe from them. And in reality as well, I want to mention in this hadith, the importance of focusing on yourself. A lot of people look and say, well, he doesn't do it. And that's a very common kind of cop-out that people use to kind of make an excuse for the sins that they do. Well, he doesn't do it. If they don't do it, that's not your sin. But you have the opportunity now for you not to do that thing. You have the opportunity for you to keep other Muslims safe from your hands and your tongue. If other people don't do it, other people don't do it. But that doesn't mean you sink down to their level. Rather, you have to strive to be Better than that. And that's a well-known principle uh, mentioned in the Qur'an. Chapter 15. Clarification of those characteristics which if a person attains will give them the sweetness of Iman. It's reported on the authority of Anas, عنه, the Prophet said, there are three qualities for which anyone who is characterized by them will relish the sweetness of Iman. He to whom Allah and His Messenger are dearer to him than all else. And he who loves a man and loves him for Allah's sake alone, and he who has, a gr who has as great a hatred of returning to unbelief after Allah has rescued him from it, as he has of being cast into hell. And it's reported on the authority of Anas that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said that three qualities for which anyone who is characterized by them will relish the, the, the sweetness of faith, that he loves a man and does not love him except for Allah's sake, he to whom Allah and His Messenger are dearer to all else and he who prefers to be thrown into the fire rather than to return to disbelief after Allah rescued him from it. The relation of this to Kitab al-Iman is very clear. That an Imam Muslim is mentioning three qualities. If you have them, you will taste the sweetness of Iman. Not just that you will have Iman, but you will taste the sweetness of Iman. The real, you know, the real heart of Iman, the real essence of Iman. And that is that you love Allah and His Messenger more than everything else. And that means you put Islam first before everything and anything. Before your job, before your family, before everything and anything else, you put Islam first. And that you love your brothers and sisters. And bear in mind, there's a principle, and this principle will help you in hadith. Anytime a man is mentioned, it applies to a woman unless it's specifically 
says that it doesn't, or there's a reason why it can't. So anytime the, you know, he or the word he is mentioned, it doesn't necessarily refer only to a man. Uh, it depends if it's a matter that, that for some reason can only apply to men, then it does. Otherwise, it applies to both. And that is that if you love your brother or your sister for the sake of Allah, and the only reason you love them is for the sake of Allah. Not because the money they're going to give you, not because they keep giving you lifts around, not because they did this for you or they did that for you. The only reason you love them is for the sake of Allah. And the person who would hate to return to disbelief after Allah rescued him as he would hate to be thrown into hellfire. And so you see the mentality, what we're trying to achieve here in terms of our iman. The first is that we put Allah and his messenger وسلم, first, above everything and anything else. The second is that we get in the habit of loving people for the sake of Allah. In such a material society, we've become in the habit of loving people for everything other than the sake of Allah. It's like, yeah, he's my brother in Islam, but he also helps me with this and he helps me with that and he's useful for this and useful for that. And it's a bit sad. What we need to do is to get in the habit of loving people for the sake of Allah and not for the sake of what they give us. And then that you would hate to return back to disbelief as you would hate to be thrown into the hellfire. And particularly, this is particularly potent and relevant to new Muslims, although not only to new Muslims, but particularly that you remember, you still remember what it's like not to be Muslim. And you would hate to go back to that like you would hate to return to the hellfire. And so you do everything you can to preserve and protect your iman and to keep you in a situation where you never, ever, ever turn back on your heels and go back in the direction. Jazakumullahu khayran wa barakallahu feekum. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika shadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu